You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by four senior leaders within the Sydney and Melbourne technology industry, where we we will be discussing the topic of creating a culture to attract and retain top talent, covering areas surrounding the optimization of hiring processes, generating productivity, onboarding and training processes, and attracting new talent. Before we jump into the questions, it'd be great to meet our panelists. So I'll start with you, Joss. Can you please introduce yourself, what you do, and what you're passionate about? Hey, Matt. Um, I'm Joss Parling. I'm a Director of Engineering at Luxury Escapes, where I look after seven teams under the banner of online customer experience. So uh, I'm very involved in hiring and people management issues. I'm involved in setting up the principles and processes that we run our engineering department by. So uh, how we do onboarding, how we do knowledge sharing, how we resolve disagreements, all that kind of stuff. And I'm also involved in, you know, often in jumping into teams that need a hand or need some extra direction and, and helping out there. Um, and I'm I'm passionate about um, about making Luxury Escapes an amazing place to work and, you know, building a truly world-class engineering team and a world-class product here. Awesome. Thanks for that, Joss. Moving on to my, I'll get you to introduce yourself next. Thanks, Matt. Uh, that's a hard act to follow, Joss. Um, my name's Mai Riri, and I'm the software engineering manager at a company called Nutrient Ag Solutions in Australia. Uh, we're part of the Australian agriculture industry and have been for over 150 years. And we are on a digital transformation, so we can sort of try and get to the level that our customers and our employees are expecting in terms of the tools and products and processes that they have access to. And my job is very similar to, I think, a lot of people here, and it's mostly a people leader and to plan, lead, um, coordinate and resource all of the um, sort of streams of work that we have. Uh, most of my days lately is spent hiring because we are trying to get a, a new squad on board and um, also dealing with things like like what Josh said, I sometimes jump in and help out in squads and also I do a little bit of solution architecture and design and things like that. Um, yep, that's it. I'm done. Awesome. Thanks, Samuel. Creeper, I'll move on to you next. Uh, thanks, Matt, for having me here. Uh, my name is Kripa Kurin, and I'm currently working as the engineering manager in Target Australia, uh, that's based out of Melbourne. Uh, in my role, I'm extremely fortunate to be leading uh, a tech development team of passionate engineers and VAs who make up the cross-functional agile squads that power the Target e-commerce site and handle the functionality all the way from the web storefront application and iOS and Android apps that the customer sees to the backend order management system to make sure that the order is received by the customer. A lot of my work uh, is to make sure that the business has the tech solutions that they need to get their vision in place. And I come from a tech background as well, uh, development, and having operated in the development, CICD and automation leadership space. Talking about my passions, I'm very passionate about technology. I've developed an open sourced and automation framework called a unified BDD automation framework on GitHub, uh, which actually presents a unified behavior-driven approach to test automation. 
uh, and uses Cucumber across API automation with rest assured, browser automation with Selenium and mobile automation with Appium in such a way that the framework can do the heavy lifting with setting up automation and execution and rendering of the reports. When I'm not pursuing my passion in technology, I do pursue a long-standing passion with music as well. And I've fronted a couple of bands before the pandemic hit. And now I actually uh, occasionally do a YouTube video. I call it uh, the music version of work from home. <laughs> we'll have to check out the YouTube videos after this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Griefa. And Alex, I'll move on to you next. That is awesome, Kripa. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Koch. I'm one of the technology leader at a company called Sightminder. We basically provide an e-commerce platform for hotels uh, and also small property uh, managers uh, to basically look after their customers, especially this upcoming uh, Easter break where there will be a lot of people now are traveling. So it's definitely a peak period. So what do I love? I love everything about software engineering craftsmanship. So all about how do we build, how do we make it better? Um, how do we refine it? Um, and so many, so many different uh, opinions and also opportunities in actually improving that. So last but not least is definitely in terms of my passions. So my passions are in three areas, the next generation talent, uh, food and sports. <laughs> That's me. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. And thanks, everyone, for introducing yourselves. So we'll just get straight into the first question. Hopefully, hopefully I get all this right. I know it's a longer one. So, Josh, this is your one. Are you better off optimizing your hiring process to eliminate false positives or false negatives? As in, are you better off erring on the side of setting the bar too high and potentially missing some good hires or too low and never missing a good candidate, but potentially letting a bad one through. So I'll get you, yeah, maybe to give some context or background behind that and then just start off with answering it yourself as well. Yeah, so the short answer is we are on the side of setting the bar too high. Um, I put forward this question because I had heard the argument made that, you know, in this market, you can't afford to miss a good hire. So you're actually better off setting the bar a little lower and ensuring you never miss a good candidate. And obviously, um, you can part ways during probation if, if it doesn't work out. And this argument was framed as fairer to the candidates too. It was sort of saying, hey, you know, if you're on the fence, just tell the candidate, hey, you're right on the cusp. We're happy to give you a shot and prove yourself if you'd like to take it. And the candidate can just decide if they're comfortable with that risk. Um, and I, I was swayed by that argument at the time, but the reality is, you know, facing into a poor hiring decision and, and you know, we've made a couple over the last year or two um, and, you know, often enough the result is, is someone exiting the company and it has such a big cultural and motivational impact on everyone that's involved that I, I don't think it's worth lowering your bar and risking it, even if it does stop you from missing a good hire. Um, so resolving a hiring mistake takes not just a lot of time, but a big emotional toll on the employee and their manager and uh, the team often have some sense of what got, what's going on and everyone just feels a bit uncomfortable about it. So I think it's, it's terrible for culture. So we're happy to set our bar high and potentially miss a few good candidates to minimize that risk. 
Um, the, the one other dimension I think is worth mentioning here is speed. You know, given the state of the market, we optimize our hiring process to be very fast. And inevitably, there's a trade-off between speed and accuracy. So, you know, our first step, for example, is a code test. It's only 30 minutes long and it's online. And I'm sure we sometimes miss a good candidate because they were nervous or just had an off day or, you know, maybe the opposite happens. They pass because they got lucky and they'd seen a similar problem recently. And, you know, I don't love that, but it's just a, a price we're resigned to paying to keep the process fast. So, yeah, short answer is we are on the side of uh, setting that hiring bar too high and also on keeping the hiring process fast. Awesome. Thanks for that, Joss. I'll uh, pass it on to you next, Mai, and get your thoughts on this one. This was actually my favourite question, I think. Um, and I would agree with Joss on, on a lot of this. I think it's actually much worse to hire a, a bad candidate, but I also think that you have a definition of a bad candidate. So we have in the past hired people that we didn't think could potentially do the role, but could stretch into doing that role. So that's not a bad candidate. That's just someone that you have to support and to make sure that they're the right type of cultural ad so that they can grow in your organization. Um, so we, we have a very short hiring pipeline as well for various reasons. I think one is a nightmare pipeline I experienced previously, which was 12 interviews long and nine months. And I don't know why I hung in for that long, to be honest. I think I was just waiting to see how much more they would torture me. Um, and so I like to keep things short and brief. And if you don't know the answer by that short time, then I think the answer is an automatic no. So we have a very short hiring pipeline and we do a technical interview, which is a verbal coding challenge. We did try you know, using um, an offline coding challenge. We've tried Hacker Rank. I've also, um, in my uh, Moonlight job, you know, we, we write our own kind of coding challenges and give people a whole weekend to do it. But I like to see that the people that I'm hiring can communicate well, and I like to see their thought process. So we, I give candidates an open kind of question, a scenario, a challenge for them to tell me how they'll write code. And usually from that kind of process, I can tell whether the person is someone that I would bring into my team, someone that has the right qualities, maybe ne not necessarily the right skill set, which is hard anyway for our tech stack. It's quite new, uh, but definitely the right attributes that they could push themselves and, and become uh, experts in that in that area, given the right support and enough time. So I favor missing out on a good candidate, potentially over hiring a bad one. But I also don't think that there's necessarily such thing as a bad candidate in, in lots of ways. It's just not right for your organization. So I've um, I've managed to hire quite a few developers using this process and we've only had short turnover. We've had two people leave and one of them was because he got a bit upset, I think, at how long we took to deliver things. We are on a big transformation journey and, you know, we're learning and we're, um, we're learning fast and not necessarily delivering value to customers at least in the first year. And he was very focused on customer value and getting things out the door. So he, it wasn't the right organization for him. And he's moved on and we still chat all the time. So it's it's all good there. And the other one was about money. And I think that's um, one thing that's pretty hot in the market right now is it's kind of the candidate's market. And that's another reason to have um, the right person join your organization because there is challenges around money at the moment and you need to have an organization that can offer more than that. And you need to find candidates that want more than that as well. So um, I tend to agree. And for us, the right candidate is somebody that would 
enjoy the environment that we have, the challenges that we have, and can either do the job that we're asking them to, or will be the type of person that can grow into that role. Awesome. Thanks, that way. I'll uh, pass it on to you next, Kripa, and get your thoughts on this one. Yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, thoughts, Mai. Uh, I tend to keep the hiring process short, a uh, couple of rounds of interviews, and then make sure that the roles and responsibilities are very, very clear to the candidate uh, who's a prospective candidate so that the expectations are also set correctly with them. That, I believe, is a huge part of the conversation so that they are understanding what they're getting into as well and the other way around. So uh, I like to keep it short and simple, really uh, important in the current climate as well. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Awesome. Thanks, Kriva. And Alex, last but not least, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, it is a challenging question, no doubt. We are all, you know, going to face a lot of this, I would say, at least for another two years because of the current market uh, situation um yeah principle wise in terms of uh, how i look at it i would say never let a bad one through that's pretty much the the principle um now i would just add that uh, the bar is for me is set higher if the person we are hiring has a people leadership responsibility so if it is a junior engineer, I think we can actually provide that person a little, a little bit of slack and give them an opportunity to prove themselves in the initial few months, as an example. But if it is a, somebody who is more senior and has a responsibility to actually coach someone or actually lead someone, and that's where we actually make sure that uh, we are actually hiring um, uh, the right person. So uh, an example there is, uh, yeah, it took me last year six months to find one of my tech lead. Um, and, uh, and that's for that sole reason, right? We, we have to get it right if somebody is actually leading a particular team. And I also have a case where um, if it is uh, just a junior to mid-level software engineer, we give them a more flexible opportunity. And um, we've been lucky that uh, maybe 60 or 70 percent of the time we are proven right uh, maybe one or two are wrong so that's from me awesome thanks for that, alex uh, i can confirm josh you are pretty quick in the market for when you how quickly you guys are <laughs> yeah. if, if, i think our best runs are a couple of days three step interview process but done in three three days consecutively yeah. <laughs> it is a good thing in the current market. Uh, mm. we'll, we'll appreciate all the answers. We'll move on to the to the next question now, which is brought forward by Mai, and is, has providing people with more control over their work and work environment created better pro productivity? If you want to yeah, give some context as to what you meant by the question, and yeah, look to answer that as well. So coming out of the, the pandemic and being based in Melbourne, um, that's where, well, Docklands in, in Melbourne CBD is is the head office for Nutrien. We, we've we had a lot of people working remotely. This project's been going for about two years, which is basically most of that time we were in lockdown. So um, we've had a transition back now, potentially. Some people are not 
doing that because they work too far away, as an example, on the Sunshine Coast. So they won't be coming back to the office, obviously. Um, but people are starting to come back to the office, but people are also not wanting to come back to the office. And people are asking for more things, um, for more flexibility in their in their, in their their jobs. And realistically, it's not really just about a contract and you come and work for us anymore. We see people as humans and they have this full life and they have hopes and dreams and they want to go do things. So at the moment, I have one of our engineers is, is, has been working in India for the last six months and he's staying over there. I don't know how long, how long he wants, I guess. And we have, a, we have another, um, another person working in, in the Middle East and we have another person working, well, about to go work in from Malaysia. And all this flexibility that we're giving them, not just in terms of location, but what work they choose as well. So I haven't been as strict with roles and responsibilities. I have special specialties. So I'll hire someone for a front-end developer role, but if they have a passion and we have the need for other work, and then I won't stop them from, from doing that work. In fact, I encourage them to, to find out what they want to work on and, and to go and learn new skills in that area and improve. So I'm, I'm wondering though, how much this is improving productivity because we're giving people more autonomy and more flexibility, but, and it's supposed to provide more productivity, but it's actually hard to tell in a remote kind of area. I don't sometimes see the results for quite some time, although I am generally happy with the results. And it's really kind of, I'm starting to question about how would I measure this and is it a good, a good approach going forward to keep providing this kind of flexibility and autonomy to developers? That's the background to this question. Awesome. Thanks, Amai. I'll, uh, Kripa, I'll move on to you next. What are your thoughts on this one? Um, for me, I really appreciate the flexibility that begets the productivity as well with this concept. This actually allows people to get more focus time where they can work as individual contributors. Um, but being physically together allows people to collaborate more. Those whiteboarding sessions, there's nothing like it where people are focused on the conversations and you see um, ideas being um, in, ideas being set uh, in, you know, uh, people working together on ideas right away. So depending on what kind of work you're working on on that particular day, especially in the IT world, this flexibility is really, really uh, awesome to have. And um, even though it stemmed from a situation that we couldn't avoid, um, uh, there's both pros and cons for this. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sakrifa. And Alex, what are your thoughts on this? I totally agree in terms of, uh, you know, the, the type of uh, change this particular uh, environment actually requires. I think um, maybe 10 years ago, we were trying to push for it, uh, at least whether you call it hybrid or mobile type of work environment, uh, we were trying to actually push for it. And it was really hard to actually overcome some of those um, barrier or understanding of how we can actually work. So like it or not, COVID actually provided the best uh, answer to try to make it work and it does work. Uh, and I believe uh, in at least in, in my particular area here is that we have team members who are working from um, multiple locations, Sydney, New Zealand, um, Melbourne, and also in Manila. And some team members is actually in Ukraine. 
Um, so as an example. So yes, I think um, key ones that we'll talk about what, what it does provide is um, what Mai has actually highlighted that is actually about that autonomy, more autonomy to the people. But autonomy here means that there is that ownership. So you are actually, you, you have the freedom or autonomy, but you actually own the outcome. So you actually have more ownership of the outcome. You are actually more engaged and more interested to actually find out what is the outcome or the customer value that you actually try to provide. And therefore you're actually hitting those uh, outcome. And uh, then one final point that I think Mai actually highlighted, then how do you actually know things are progressing? And that's the bit about this working virtually is everyone is learning how to actually make it work. So far for me, experience here is that in every single sprint is knowing how things are progressing, uh, maybe looking at the trends, sprint to sprint uh, in terms of velocity or the uh, assurance of hitting those milestones. Um, anything that is focusing on the outcome and the customer uh, output, I think that will be a much more better ownership because we are focusing on the output and the ownership. So that's from my particular experience in the inside minder. Thanks. Nice. Mike. Nice, thanks that Alex. And Josh, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think the answer most people will want to hear here is that it's been wholly positive. Um, but I think for me, it's been mixed. I'd say employees who are really strong and also people who are sort of quite ambitious usually thrive in that kind of environment. People are really strong owners, but um, people who need a bit more support don't always go as well. And, you know, it does come with challenges. So um, with regards to control over work environment, I assume that's, you know, largely getting at the remote trend. Um, at Luxury Escapes, we're two days in the office, three days remote, which I think is about the right balance. We do also have offshore teams. Um, we could give employees full control and allow them to go full remote if they'd like, and um, some would make that choice. And for some people, you know, it may even be more productive when viewed through a sort of an any given day lens. Um, but if we zoom out to a time frame of a year, say, then I think we'd lose something culturally from not having that face-to-face -face time. And, um, you know, even for the very senior developers who are very good at remote communication, um, I think the up-and-comers will lose something by not getting that face-to-face -face time with the seniors. Um, likewise, with regards to control over work itself, you know, how much autonomy do you give people in deciding what they spend their, their time on? Um, and again, I think it varies. You know, in general, if people are more experienced, and I'd also say when they tend to be sort of hungrier or more ambitious, they'll be more productive with more autonomy and more ownership. Um, and then there are others who like and need a bit more guidance and, you know, a bit more direction and support, and that's fine too. So um, when it comes to sort of providing people with more control, I think it's about finding balance and adjusting that balance to suit the individual and their experience and their personality and, um, you know, but for the people who really thrive with ownership and autonomy, I love those people. They're the, they're the ones we really want to find. And, um, you know, when you find one like that, then by all means, you give it to them. Awesome. Agree with all that as well. Thanks for thanks for all your answers. Um, moving on to, to the next one now. Uh, Creepy, this is your one. With this question, so 
the question is, how do you ensure that the onboarding and training process is smooth in the current remote onboarding world for employees who might not have experienced similar experiences previously? And how important do you think this is for talent attraction and retention? So I'll get you to start with this one and yeah, give us some context as well, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Um, so in most companies, CNA and HR have a good primary onboarding process. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to be working in a sp space where CNA and HR have a fantastic and comprehensive onboarding process as well. Uh, but even if your company has a process in place for onboarding and TNA and HR have shared documentation for day one formalities to the team member, and you were also part of the hiring process as well as hiring manager, what I do is then make it a point to reach out to them to just business two to three business days ahead of their joining date. Um, I believe it makes a huge difference to the team member joining if they feel secure about walking into or uh, in the current climate, probably switching over to the Microsoft Teams then into an unknown organization. So to an extent, they are making a huge leap of faith. Um, it, I, I do have a casual conversation with them with instructions about their first day, what to expect, whether they have received their workstation for starting work, how their first day will be like, etc., which sets them up uh, to feel comfortable walking in. And on that first day, I set up a meet and greet with them where I give them an introductory session about the work uh, uh, or I would say the mission. That is what your team does today and the vision. That is what the team wants to be doing in the future uh, and the ways of working, the ecosystem, uh, the team structure, reiterating the roles and responsibilities from the role as well and the next steps for them for the day and week. So I also introduce them to the squad, to the wider team, to their own, um, allow them to introduce them, uh, introduce them to themselves to the team in their own words uh, and make sure that they are set up for success. Um, so anyone who has started a new role with a pre-existing space would have felt how overwhelming that experience feels like, uh, meeting a bunch of new people, re-establishing their ways of working, you know, feeling a little bit lost when they might have felt like a complete SME and a totally in control in their previous job that they probably stepped away from. So uh, anyone who started a job remotely might agree with me that all of these uh, hit them about 10 times uh, more if they do not know the right person to reach out to. So I've always tried to keep in mind the first day or week experience that I have, I have experienced to build out the onboarding process. Uh, we also have comprehensive um, onboarding catalog of YouTube style videos uploaded to Microsoft Streams of all the sessions around um, everything that they need to be equipped with, like application functionality, the different areas of development according to the role, um, be it UI development, backend development, QA and automation, business analysis, uh, or utilities and support functions that we deal with on a regular basis, um, and the process we have in place, including the ways of working. So, I uh, also make sure that I assign them a buddy so that there are there is somebody showing them the ropes whenever they feel like they're hitting a roadblock. Uh, also, last but not the least at all, similar to anything else in your professional life, 
be on a journey of continuous improvement. Um, I take feedback from team members who went through the process of onboarding so that I can consistently fine tune it. Um, I saw a leadership advice that said, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people so that they can tell us what to do. So I always ask them two to three weeks into their time with us what they think we can do differently for the next person so that the onboarding process might be easier for them. So that creates a culture of trust as well and sets them up for success. And I think that's very crucial. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Creeper. Thanks for your answer. And I'll move it on to you next, Alex, and get your thoughts. That is a very comprehensive onboarding, I would say. Um, I don't think you missed anything there. Um, we we have, I, I would say, in Sidminder, we would have followed quite a number of similar things that uh, you have actually highlighted there, So, which is fantastic, right? Because that's, that's what the new uh, engineers or tech uh, employees expect nowadays is that that onboarding is going to help them to actually fast track their learnings to be productive as soon as possible, and they want to be, um, they don't want, they they want to be contributing as soon as possible too. So I am one of the a good example of a COVID situation where I. Oh, you just, I don't know. If that's just me, but <laughs> no, no, that's a dropout. That's a dropout. Uh, is, is, is it working now? Oh, it's it's back now. Yeah. Yeah, okay, going, sorry. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just uh, repeating that again is, the, uh, you know, I, I'm one of the lucky ones who has been able to uh, start my new job completely virtual and, um, and onboarded at uh, SiteMinder. So I guess what works uh, is that there is this concept, this principle uh, among all my peers and also team members is they are always available. In the office, you're always uh, able to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I have this question, can I ask you this? And I guess from a virtual world perspective, whether you're using Slack or you're using any other communication tool is that, yes, we are always there. If you have a question, no matter how stupid it is, just ask away. So I think that's one of the principles that actually helped me during that period. Then the second one, I guess, is as you highlighted there, Kripa, is that you know building up that team collaboration, um, allowing the, the team members to actually come together really well um, and also have a 90 days plan mapped out for the new hire so that they know that process, how to actually get through uh, that first initial stage. Um, my experience so far is that uh, good engineers, basically by the time they hit the 60 days mark, they basically, they are off. They, they are well, truly working well by the two months mark if they are able to actually work remotely, independently and take ownership of their work. So that's from me, Matt. Awesome. Thanks, uh, Alex. And Joss, I'll move on to you next. Uh, yeah, you know, I feel like the cliche answer to any question about making remote work well is communication, communication, communication. Um, but I'm pretty much going to give that same answer here. And I think I'll cover a lot of the same points that Kripa mentioned. Um, first, if we can do those first few days face to face, then we do it. Um, but if we can't, then yeah, ensure you've touched base 
the day before or, or you know a couple of days before to to set um, the expectations for start day. Um, ensure you have excellent onboarding documentation. Ensure it's up to date. Ensure the employee's manager or, or their onboarding buddy is checking in with them super regularly in those first few days and giving them a lot of pairing time if they need it. Um, they're not going to get that coffee together or that lunch together. So make sure there's some space for off-topic conversation and, and you know getting to know each other. Um, I always do a couple of skip level check-ins too and ask people for feedback on their onboarding, what could be improved. You know, Even if it's just a tiny nitpick, we're gonna hire lots of people over the next year. So the slightest improvement is worth knowing. Um, you know, Are you getting the support you need to succeed? Is the job what you expected? Are there any surprises? Is there training you'd like? Is your manager responsive? Um, are they giving you clear direction? Do you understand the bigger picture of the company and what uh, your team is trying to achieve within that bigger picture? Um, just trying to paint all that and, and make it really clear for them. Um, and equally important is you know, what I'd sort of call the ramping up period, where onboarding is your first week or so, and then ramping up period is the first couple of months, and it poses its own challenges for remote workers. Um, you don't bump into other people in the office and learn what they do and sort of put together a mental map of the business beyond your own team that way. Um, and you know that's a problem that we're still working on at Luxury Escapes and figuring out how we best solve it. I think we need more um, team building for remote teams. That's one factor. But you know, as I'm sure you've all experienced, doing remote team building well is really tricky. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's really important for retaining uh, talent and, and for getting the most out of the talent you have. Awesome. Thanks for that, Joss. And last but not least, Mai, I'll get your thoughts on this one. We have a very similar new hire orientation and onboarding process as Creeper, so I'm not going to go over that because we've, we've heard it. And um, But I think that Joss touched on something that's really important, which is the onboarding really is like the first week or so. And then after that, it's more about is, the, is that person becoming a valuable asset? To the organization and are they are they feeling that they've got that they're, they're in the right place and do they have the support that they need that's that's kind of the thing that i think is going to keep people where they are and and maybe create an organization that people want to come and, and work at and one of the things that we have done over this period is all of our hiring has mostly been remote um, so all of our onboarding has also been remote and all of our team building has also been remote. And I think Joss touched on something that's very important, which is when you're in the same location and you're near one another and you can see people and you can go up to them and talk to them, you can start building relationships with them. But when they're just little squares, like Brady Bunch on a screen, <laughs> it's a lot harder to form real relationships and attachments and actually, and bonds. And those are the things that will create that culture that we're talking about. An organization is just a brick and mortar place with an ABN and a name and a mission. But the culture is really the, it's the people that work there. And when you're remote, you don't have the same opportunities to build those relationships. So as part of our onboarding process, we also do a lot of other things, which is not necessarily what I would say onboarding, but just the team building. And that's not just in in the engineering space, but it's across our entire digital team, which is about 80 people. So we do multiple things to make sure that people feel like they're part of the team and, and feel like they can be vulnerable and trust people and build that psychological safety that you need so your people can take the risks that we need them to take. Um, and, and I think you touched on that a little bit too, Joss, when you said the remote team building. It's really hard to do that 
remotely. So there's there's a few things that that we that I try to do in the development team, other than um, we do you know pair program remotely. There's some really good tools out there. I can't remember what the one is that we use. I think it's called Tuple, but we use and there's you can do some like shared coding as well. There's um, you can have a shared ID and code. It's a bit useless, but also quite fun. And I like for the developers to have fun, even if it's not necessarily producing the output that we might need. You kind of need to to um, learn to to work with one another and enjoy one another's company if you're going to be a successful team. But we also do, um, and I don't organise this. This is organised. This is digital team wide. But we do team fun activities every Monday. I think it goes for about half an hour. I never make it, but I think they do. They <laughs> I, I did go to one, and it was it was like a um, like a treasure hunt at home and you're in teams. It was very fun actually. And, you know, we do, we, one of our graduates organized a coffee roulette. So every week you get like randomly assigned two people to catch up with and, and just talk to them, um, which is important in a team of 80 people. Like I don't even know some people, it's, it's getting crazy. And I also run developer fun activities and it's getting a bit hard for me to keep doing it. So I've outsourced it to the developers now. And I think the last one that we did, you might like this actually creeper. We use this uh, program called Sonic Pi. So you can write mm. code and it creates music and it was so much fun. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of fun things you can still do when you're remote. Although I don't think it will ever replace being in an office and being around people and creating that camaraderie that you otherwise would have. And I think, Something you touched on, Alex, is also very important. You know, we have a mix of um, people with different backgrounds and experience. We just had three graduates start. And we're lucky that we're um, coming back into the office. But I remember when I was a graduate, if I had to start remotely, I think I would have I would have lost something that was very important. So I think we're all lucky for them that they were able to go into the office and there were people there that could be that first face in their first kind of important job in, in the industry that they've chosen to build their careers on. But I think, yeah, beyond onboarding, because to be honest, nobody has ever, um, you know, left the job because the one week of onboarding, well, I don't know anyone. It probably has happened, but I don't know anyone that's gone, this onboarding's garbage and I'm leaving. But um, but it, it can be the thing that does um, attract people sometimes. But I, in, in preparation for this question, I reviewed all of my interview notes for the last four years, which is about 124 that I kept, and only three people asked questions about onboarding. So I, I think that the, the actual onboarding part is probably less important in terms of attraction, but more important in terms of how you, how you build that culture and how mature your, your team is. Awesome. Thanks, Samway. And th thanks all for the answers. That was some very thorough answers right there. So I'm well impressed. That was good. Um, and just last question, moving on to, which is Alex's. So the question is, is it enough or sufficient to depend on local universities to produce new talents or we or we need better industry collaboration and new ideas or do we need? Yeah, I'll get you to yeah, start with that one, Alex. Thanks, Matt. So I guess the context here is that I've been involved in internship and also graduate programs at least for more than 10 years now. Uh, started off sponsoring a very small graduate internship program in Combank when we were actually running and um, also scaling up the, um, the online uh, digital teams uh, in Combank. 
Um, and so look, there, there has been a lot of uh, good, exciting things that we have done together with the internship and also uh, with the grads in collaboration with all the local universities. So it was really good. Um, and there are a lot of smart people in those uh, interns and graduates groups there. I'm sure all of you will agree with that. What we do know is that in the last 10 years, if it is not present, uh, in the in the ten years ago, is that it is very it is very um, it is very challenging now that um, more and more so that uh, other companies from other regions. Uh, I'm talking about people like from Facebook or Google or you know um, or or Amazon, for example. They're no longer actually just staying in their regions and basically coming after the raw talents. Uh, in Australia or even in the Asia Pac, for example. So it's basically, um, it's the same problem, right? It's basically, we have uh, talent uh, shortages all over the world. And basically the industry giants are basically going everywhere to try to find the right talents. So it is an industry-wide type of challenge, regardless of which country you are in. So because I've been involved in this particular type of uh, next generation programs for a while. So I was just thinking whether we do continue to actually depend on how many or how good those uh, talents coming out from our local universities, or we ourselves as part of the industry is contribute to actually making a difference in this particular space here. So, I mean, we have seen some of those comments from large organizations where they say we need to hire 5,000 engineers or 1,000 engineers. It's a scary number. When you look at the total number of graduates we have here locally, it's never around that uh, thousands mark. Um, so uh, yeah, it is a, it's a real challenge. So I just thought of getting some feedback from the panel here in terms of what you thought if, if we do actually do something different other than what is available in the universities. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. I'll uh, go to you next, Joss. Yeah, you know, I really like this question. Um, it's a really, really hard one. Um, the reason so few companies do invest in juniors, let's be honest, is because it's generally a risky value proposition. Um, even after four years of university and certainly after three months of boot camp, it often takes a long time and a lot of mentoring to get return on investment. Um, I do think universities can cut the maths and physics from a software engineering degree and make it much more focused on code. Um, I think something between the four-year degree and the three-month boot camp could work well. Um, I, some people laughed at that with their mics muted. I don't know if you, uh, you, you're strongly disagreeing or agreeing or... We'll come off of mute and laugh. <laughs> that, that was on the comment of cutting out um, physics and maths from the from software engineering degrees. Do you, are you laughing because you agree or disagree, Alex and Kripa? Uh, no comment, Chuck. <laughs> okay. This is this is a real case. Um, my son is doing a five years degree in software engineering, so I think he would have been productive to the industry just after the two-year mark but then hey you know yeah that's how, what it is right where i'm coming from is um i started a two-year software engineering degree i skipped all my lectures and I, I was a good student at high school and then university i was like man i'm not getting much out of this i skipped heaps of lectures and blah 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 and i was working for my dad who's a software developer and 
doing my sort of, you know, actual apprenticeship with him and then just dropped out and, and um, dropped out of uni and learned to code or, or got a coding job based on the experience working with my dad. Um, so yeah, I, something between the four-year degree and the three-month boot camp might work well. And the other thing I used to think is that, you know, the right model might be an apprenticeship model like plumbing and building and so on, where companies work with TAFEs to put apprentices through a sort of industry-wide standard combination of on-the-job training and theory. Um, but the difference there is that you can be useful on a building site from day one. You know, the site always needs cleaning. There's always stuff to pick up from suppliers. And then there's lots of repeatable junior tasks like cutting wood to length or digging trenches. So you can ramp up in the skills of the building trade gradually while being useful as you go. Um, but software is different, you know, anything that's repeatable and simple is just automated away. And there's so much knowledge and experience you need before you're useful. And it, it's actually getting worse. Um, I cut my teeth on making brochureware sites for small businesses and eased into web development that way. But, um, you know, these days, small businesses get a site on Squarespace and there's no dev work involved and the easy work's automated away. And you know, the front end's getting more and more complex with React and all that sort of stuff. And so it's sort of like, you know, the, in, the the first 30 years of the computer industry was building abstractions that made it much more accessible to people. And now I feel like we're, we're building abstractions which might provide better user experience, but make the industry less accessible, you know? Um, so software, I think it's like more comparable to maybe like medicine or law where there's a lot of training required before you're job ready. Um, but those industries are very regulated and, and software is not. And, and so possibly if we had a much more regulated industry and a much more standard process of becoming job ready, then we'd be able to attract um, high percentage of high school graduates. But it, it's not going to happen. You know, software is a laissez-faire global economy and anyone who can um, get a job can code. And I kind of love that about it. You know, it democratizes the industry. It means that people in poorer countries can get well-paying remote jobs with overseas companies. You know, anyone with access to a computer and enough determination can make their way into the industry under their own steam, guided by um, excellent free online resources, or at least that's kind of the dream we sell. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe making young people aware of that opportunity, encouraging them to take it is the best thing the industry can do. But I don't know. I think it's a really hard problem. Awesome. Thanks for that answer, Joss. And Moi, moving on to you next. So, I think that my role as a leader is to create other leaders. And so that does sometimes mean that I have to put in effort and support for less experienced people. And we have um, graduates that, that take a lot of time. And you're right, Josh, they, they take a lot of time to return on investment as well. But they're also a learning experience for other people. So I have developers that have asked for more responsibilities and have asked for people management and having graduates or more junior developers is an, is an opportunity to help those people to grow in the areas that they want. I was actually super surprised when one of my developers asked for that as well. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't actually asked him, what do you want to do? Which is strange because I guess I just hadn't realized until, I don't know, in the last year that you should ask your developers that quite frequently because Sometimes I don't even know. And it is also your job to try and help them figure out what that is. And so I think that, yeah, graduates or less experienced people are, are, are difficult, but that's the point. It, it's it, They're not meant to be this free, cheap resource for you. They're meant to be people that you can kind of help grow into the, the um, 
into the organization. That's that's why I picked graduates, to be honest, because in this in this um, environment, we have we do have some work that we haven't necessarily automated away and they can go and pick some of that up with some support. And then, you know, some of the other developers get that opportunity to help help learn and to help teach as well. So I quite like giving that opportunity. And I think um, one of the reasons is because I was one of those uh, graduates at one point in time. In fact, actually, I wasn't even a graduate. Something that you talked about, Joss, is that um, you, there is an opportunity to have apprenticeships. So I actually did a degree called Bachelor of IT Industry. And this happened, well, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but back in 2003, um, Griffith University had a partnership with a company called Global Online Learning, who were an IBM partner. And the idea was that um, mainframes were dying, those skills in mainframes are dying out and universities weren't teaching students skills in mainframes because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the fun in thing anymore. But there's still many, many organisations that rely on mainframes. So there's still a need. And that ageing workforce is get, leaving the industry. So they needed to fill in people with those skills. So they created this course geared towards mainframes. I'm not kidding you, I learned mainframes. It's such a weird thing to say now in 2022, but that is the case. And they partnered with um, companies like Defence, the civilian arm, it's called DCB, not like the fighting arm, and um, Health Insurance Commission, who's become Medicare Australia, that's who I worked for. Um, the ATO, I'm probably missing some, IBM. And what happened is that you did one year at uni somewhere. So I went to university in Newcastle, which is about two hours north of Sydney. And then you applied for a position with one of these companies and then they would um, put you on this course. So they paid for your university because they want you to learn about mainframes, obviously. And um, then they then you worked for them for 10 months of the year and you did some university courses at the same time. And then for the last few months of the year, they, they flew us to the Gold Coast, to the um, Griffith University campus there, where we did accelerated learning. So we did six months worth of learning in those two months time at, in that in that period on the Gold Coast. We had a lot of fun too. I mean, we were like 18, we we're on the Gold Coast and we had an all expenses trip. Let's be honest, it was, a, it was an absolute blast. And we did that for about three years and we had a degree paid for. We had a great time on the Gold Coast as well. And we were paid quite well and it catapulted my career. So when I graduated, I had about two and a half years experience if you if you don't count the, you know, months partying, I mean, learning on the on the Gold Coast. <laughs> and so I think that that really set me up for success, actually. And I think it was um, quite successful overall. But that that thing isn't happening anymore, by the way. They're not running this course anymore. Um, and none of us actually ended up working in, in mainframes, I don't think. So as an example, I had to learn all about mainframes, but then I ended up doing like Java development and even worse, Lotus Notes development. But anyway, that's uh, that's that's what I, I ended up doing. I know nothing about mainframes, but the the like the joke response when someone asks you, someone less technical asks you, oh, how'd you do that? You say, oh, I just hacked the mainframe. <laughs> <laughs> well... It was actually interesting to learn about them. And, you know, when I worked at Medicare, they they had, uh, you could go and look at them as well. And they had this robot. I can't remember what for now. We're talking 20 years ago. But you could see this robot and it had like an arm that it, they'd taken from the auto industry. And it would, you would just watch it doing like moving discs around. It was really yeah, right. interesting. And it was, it was a worthwhile experience. Would I want to work in mainframes? <laughs> no, I don't think that that's a, that's my desire in life, but I, I found it quite rewarding to learn about it actually. 
Um, and the courses was also quite fun. So um, back in those days, you know, we had CDs and DVDs to do courses. <laughs> and um, IBM obviously was a big part of this course because IBM mainframes. And they had, there was about eight CDs of training courses that we had to do in our online learning part. And they they formed the course like it was like you were learning to fly a plane. And so it was it was absolutely terrible. So they would be teaching us about mainframes and a horrible American accent would be like, great job, pilot. You've just learned about ZOX. It was absolutely the worst, but also because it was so bad, it was ultimately amusing. And they also uh, they had their own little intro songs, which were popular songs that they just changed the words to. So as an example, and do apologize you can cut this out later matt by the way but he, here's <laughs> one of the songs in. that they had they had a song that went we built this company we built this company on large mainframes it was god off but good. i had the time of my life and it was i think it was a very worthwhile experience and i think that if we're ever in the opportunity if we ever have the opportunity to help somebody else get a leg up in the industry then we should do that Excuse me. Thanks, Samway, and and great singing. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, by the way, that's Starship, isn't it? <laughs> I I have no idea. I only know the IBM Rock version. Rock and roll, though. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and Creep, I'll get your thoughts on this one. Yeah, that was brilliant, uh, Mai. Uh, Alex, I think that is a brilliant question. I think it is a very pertinent question as well, because I think there's great talent in the local market. Um, and there is a lot of uh, homegrown talent as well. But we're in a climate where any company that has a digital strategy or that had a digital strategy is amping it up. And any company that did not have one is setting it up. So there is a huge demand for tech talent in the market. And so maybe even the local uni unis or a graduate program might not necessarily be able to keep up with the demand at the moment. I would say now more than ever, it is great to have a balance with local talent versus relying on offshore talent as well where required. So thankfully, I've uh, been very fortunate to work with uh, companies where we have the ability to tap into talent from overseas as well and have a comprehensive graduate program. So depending on the onboarding and ramp up time you can afford to have against a particular role, it is important to change your strategy and have the ability to have that flexibility. Uh, and I think that that will give you a great model that is sustainable, especially in the current climate, if that makes sense. Awesome. Thanks, that Creeper. And uh, look, I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, appreciate everyone. Thanks, thanks everyone for your answers. Everyone was very thorough. Um, and hopefully everyone got a lot out of that. Uh, on the overarching topic of creating a culture to attract and retain top talent. So I'll leave it there. Thank you all for listening and look forward to catching you next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast.